Well, every night you know you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. Let's get back there tonight. While you're turning, let me just mention a couple of things. Um, mentioned last night, after 25 years pastoring, I'm now representing a mission organization. Biblical Ministries Worldwide has missionaries all over the world in 40-some countries. And uh, I'm glad for the ones we have, but it's not enough. Uh, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. And we need more laborers. And Jesus said the answer to that is to pray for more laborers. So uh, I'm praying this week. I kind of warned you last night. I'll warn you again. I'm praying this week that God will work in the lives of people who hear. It might be pastors or uh, might be counselors or camp staff. Uh, might be teenagers, but I'm praying that God will work and uh, not only draw us closer to Himself, but get ready for some of us to launch. I love singing with you guys. I love it. But if the only time we think or talk or, or sing about the gospel is when we're with other Christians, we can't really say that we are gospel-centered people. You know, if we really love the gospel, we can't just sing about it at camp or at church or read about it or talk to Christians about it, but we have to get the gospel to lost people. Uh, one writer has said, you know, the goal is not to have the biggest church in town or the coolest church in town, but the only church in town. There are places all over the world don't even have a single gospel preaching witness, not a single gospel preaching church. We need more laborers. And uh, I have conversations this week with like five or six staff members about how the Lord might use them in missions. And they've come to me and said, hey, let's talk about this. I'm thrilled about that. I would love to talk to more of you. So if you come up to me and just say, hey, I don't know what God wants me to do exactly, but talk to me about missions. Let's, let's have a conversation. I would love that. So I'm praying to that end. I'll also mention just very quickly, at the back table, I'm very grateful uh, Sarah is helping me out. At the back table, uh, when I'm not pastoring or, or preaching or doing missions, uh, I write and I have a number of resources, uh, not only mine, but some others that we have published. They're available on the back table. There's a new book on hymns. There's a couple CDs. Most of you don't know what that is. They're little round things that people used to listen to music to uh, from, uh, but those are available on our website, there's a number of, of hymns and psalms that are available. Those are free. You can go to the website and download them and copy them and pass them out. Sell them if you can. Uh, that's free. But if those things could be a blessing to you, then there are several things available as you walk out. And uh, I won't mention that a lot, but it might help you to kind of deepen your own understanding, appreciation of the gospel to get some of those resources. A few copies of The God Who Satisfies, which is the John 4 we're studying this week. John 4, we have Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Last night, we basically said that her life was a wreck and that she represents all of us. All of our lives are a wreck. You know, we're confused. We're sinful. We're ignorant. We might be depressed. We might be ashamed and avoiding people. But Jesus loves us in spite of ourselves. And I'm really not trying to like you know, push you down. I'm just saying the reality is God doesn't love us because we've achieved something. The only thing we really achieve is rebellion and sin. Okay, we've all gone our own way. We've wandered away from Him. Nobody is seeking after God. And so God in His mercy seeks after us. The first point last night, I really didn't preach the gospel. I just said, we're a mess. God loves us anyway. And Jesus seeks sinners. 
So he's the one in pursuit. She's evading. She's dodging, excusing, lying to some degree. Jesus keeps relentlessly going after her. But he's, he has more purpose than just to seek her. Tonight we come to the second message, and it really is building on Luke 19.10. Jesus is being criticized for hanging out with sinners. But as we said last night, he, he did that all the time because he's omnigracious. He's so merciful. And to those who were saying he shouldn't hang out with sinners, he said, for the Son of Man, uh, a title for himself, he says, for I came to seek and to save the lost. He seeks sinners so that he can save sinners. Last night we learned that he sought this Samaritan woman and that he seeks people like us. He, he's in pursuit. He loves us. And then tonight we're focusing on how Jesus saves sinners. Message two is just Jesus saves sinners. We're going to start in John 4, and then I'm going to jump to another favorite passage of mine. I've preached for a long time. Uh, I've preached longer than most of you have been alive. You know, 30 years, thousands of sermons. I have never wanted to be clearly understood more than I do right now. I prayed, just God, do a work tonight. Help me to explain, but but do something far bigger than I could do. Demonstrate your power and open our eyes to the truth. And let's pray right now. Lord, help Christians understand the gospel better and marvel at it, wonder at it, be transformed by it, be motivated by it, maybe even be deployed to a life of service by the power of the gospel. You've bought us with such love, with, with the very blood of Jesus. We're not our own. So we can't live lives that just have selfish ambitions. We belong to you. Lord, what do you want us to do? I know you want us to obey Scripture. I know you want us to walk with you. I know you want us to evangelize the lost. Some of us, you want us to get out of here and, and leave Iowa or Minnesota or Nebraska and go to some dark place and tell the lost about you. But Lord, because you own us, I pray for you to work. And oh God, I pray for any who come in tonight who don't yet know Jesus, they are still lost. They are still condemned. They are still hell-bound, far from you. I pray in your mercy that you will use your word to penetrate their hearts, to, to prick their conscience, take away any peace of mind, give them a spirit-produced anxiety in their soul until they find peace by trusting in Jesus Christ. And some of them might arrive tonight and they know they're lost and they're, they're not believers. They're kind of proud of that. They think they're intellectual. They think they're you know, kind of smarter than everybody else and they're weighing the evidence. But I pray that you would humble them and draw them to salvation. And Lord, some might arrive tonight thinking they're saved, but they've never truly repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus They've never been born again. They might be like Nicodemus. They look good. They're religious. They're respected, but they're lost. They're dead. If that's the case in your mercy, open their eyes to the truth. Spirit of God, move tonight and use your word. You are powerful to save. You love to save. You rejoice when a sinner repents. Might there be joy in heaven tonight and for the rest of the week? And might you use the people that are gathered here, not just this week, but for years and decades to come, do something amazing. Only you can do that. And I'm not even trying to persuade you because it's your will. 
So Lord, we agree with you and just say, God, do it. And we'll be very jealous that nobody gets glory but you. Not the camp, not the counselors, the pastors, the speakers, the churches. All the glory goes to you. Do something awesome. Do it through your word tonight. Help us. Improve on this prayer when you answer it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That's Jesus on a rescue mission. John chapter 4, we'll start reading. I'm going to start reading in verse 7 instead of verse 10 just to get a running start. I'm not going to read the whole chapter tonight, but uh, 7 through 26. So let's stand for a moment and uh, we'll go ahead and read the scripture and then kind of lean into the gospel and things that you know, but you could know better. All right, so let's, let's learn some things tonight. John chapter 4, verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They're hateful and prejudiced, but not Jesus. Jesus answered her, if you knew. That's huge. If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I'm offering you eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's interested. She asks. She doesn't perfectly understand. She still thinks it's about the water and the well. But she asks, and Jesus says, good enough, let's go deeper. So he starts answering. He says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband, evasively. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. The one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, because Jesus was there. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him, that's huge, God is seeking people to worship Him. Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. It's the same thing. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, kind of with a shrug, maybe, maybe with a piqued interest. Maybe she's you know, kind of surmising this. She said, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ, the Savior. When He comes, He will tell us all things Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And I believe that's the moment that this sinful woman was born again. 
We'll talk about that tonight. Be seated, please. Jesus, Jesus saves sinners. Now, in dealing with this woman, I, I said last night, Jesus is compassionate, he's merciful, he seeks the outcast, he's not prejudiced, he's not misogynistic, he doesn't, you know, doesn't value men instead of women or anything like that. Jesus is just different than you think. He's kinder than you think. I said he's omnigracious. And yet, when Jesus helps this woman, he begins by exposing her sin. Okay, when we say that Jesus is merciful, he doesn't, because of that mercy, just ignore her sinful condition. He doesn't say, you know, you've messed up, everybody's messed up, don't worry about it, let's pretend it didn't happen. In order to help her, he touches on the most awkward thing in her life. You know, the skeleton's in her closet, and he says, hey, go get your husband. And he kind of gives her a chance to admit, oh, you, wow, it's funny you should ask that. Which one do you want me to get? I've had five, I'm living with the sixth. Maybe there have been seven or eight. Maybe she'd lived with several people. So Jesus kind of prods her, gives her a chance to admit that she's a sinner, and she doesn't. She just conveniently says, well, technically, I'm not married. Jesus is God. He knows everything. It's a mystery. I can't, I can't delve into it, but it's a mystery in John 4. Jesus is God. He knows what she's thinking. He knows her past without asking. And yet, earlier in the chapter, he sat down on the well because he's weary. And he asked for a drink because he's thirsty. How can he be God and be thirsty? Because he's God become man, and it's a mystery, and it's amazing. And we don't have time to talk about it, but it's amazing. So Jesus is talking to her, and he exposes her sin. It is a mercy when God reveals to us how sinful we are. It's a mercy. It's a kindness. Now, I recognize there are Christians, maybe well-intentioned, but they go around just pointing fingers at everybody. They're accusing. You know, they're kind of hateful. They're self-righteous. They're like the Pharisee in Luke 18 he supposedly is praying, but he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like sinners, all you all. You know, God, I thank you that I'm not like this publican, this tax collector especially. So he's, he's not really praying. He's just congratulating himself, and it's obnoxious. And Jesus said the man was unsaved. I admit that there are Christians like that. But on the other hand, there are people that claim to be Christians, and they think in their compassion, you know, they don't want to call out sin. They don't want to say to people, actually, you're breaking God's law. Your pride is an offense to God. Your lust is an offense to God. Your immorality is an offense to God. And in that immorality, it could, be, it could be homosexuality, or it could be heterosexuality, but either way, if you're not married as God intended, then it's sexual sin. You know, it might even, it might even be just People on their own, they're, they're just fantasizing, and it's sin. And there are people, they say, well, we want to be compassionate. We don't want to call out sinners. That's not compassion. True compassion is when you come to someone and say, here's what God's Word says, and it calls you a sinner. The Bible does that again and again. The Bible actually says that we use the law of God to, to drive people to Christ. They, they go to Christ because they're so aware of their guilt, of their filth. 
And so when we see preaching in the book of Acts, you know, Peter's going after these Jews and he's saying, you are hard-hearted. You are stiff-necked. You killed the prince of life. God came down to earth and you crucified him. You know, it wasn't a message like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, or it wasn't a Joel Osteen, like, you know, God just, big, big cheesy grin, God just wants you to be happy and satisfied. You're a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Unless you repent, you will perish. That's the message of the Bible. You say, man, that is not loving. Oh, it is. Because God is doing that so that he can solve it. God is exposing sin, kind of dragging it into the light so he can deal with it. I use this illustration. Imagine if you go to a doctor, you've had headaches. The doctor does a scan and he knows that you have a malignant tumor. It could be operable or maybe it could be treated with chemo and radiation. But the doctor's like, oh, you know what? I feel so bad for this guy. I think instead of telling him he has cancer, which will make him sad, I think I'm just going to tell him he's healthy. Hey, you're fine. Don't worry about a thing. Isn't that doctor compassionate? No, the doctor is killing the person. He thinks he's being compassionate, but he's lying. And the person has a big problem that's not getting treated. When people deny sin, they're not being compassionate. They're being arrogant. You know, you're not more merciful than Jesus. Don't try to be. Jesus exposes sin. He says, you have a big problem, but I'm not saying that in order to condemn you. I'm saying that in order to help you. Look back at John 3. We're in John 4. John 3, 17. I referred to it last night. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to condemn this lady, but that the world might be saved through him. He wants the Samaritan woman to be saved, so he says, let's talk about your sin. God exposes our sin, but not to berate us. And there are Christians who do that. But he doesn't do it to berate us. He exposes our sin in order to solve it. Now let's talk about how does he solve it. Well, first he exposed her sin. By the end of the story... Jesus forgave her sin. Jesus forgave her sin. This sinful, confused woman who was part of a false religion, when she met Jesus, she was saved and everything about her was changed. I mean, there's no question. I said, I think at the end of verse 26, when Jesus said to her, I am the Messiah, I am the promised Savior. I'm the one that you've been waiting for for thousands of years. I'm here. I think when Jesus said that, she believed it and she was born again. I don't know if she raised her hand, walked an aisle, prayed the sinner's prayer, but she believed that Jesus was the Savior and she was born again. And she immediately starts to prove that by the way she lives. The passage doesn't go into great detail about her salvation. It doesn't... You know, it doesn't use the typical language. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
you know, repent and be converted so your sins will be blotted out. It doesn't use language like that. It just kind of shows us the results. She's saved and she starts telling other people about Jesus and they all get saved. And remember, by the end of the passage, verse 42, the entire village is saying, we now know that you're the savior of the world. The savior of the world. All kinds of people. All kinds of Samaritan women like us. You know, we know that she heard about Jesus. She heard that Jesus was the promised Savior. She believed and it changed her life. Through the passage, you actually see her taking baby steps. Initially, she meets Jesus and she expects him to be a typical man. I, I'm, I'm not trying to be irreverent or blasphemous. But she sees a man and she might think, oh, here we go. This guy's probably going to hit on me. Because that's been the story of my life. You know, she thinks he's a typical man. She knows he's a Jew. So, oh, he's not going to hit on me. He might actually hit me. He probably is going to hate me. He's probably prejudiced and, and misogynistic and hateful like most other Jewish men that walk through here. Maybe like the 12 disciples she just passed as they went into town. She misunderstood Jesus, so she said, why are, why are you talking to me? And Okay, so he's a, he's a nice Jew. That's weird, but good, a nice Jew. Jesus says that he could give her living water, and she says, probably with a little bit of snark, oh, you've got better water than I do, huh? My water at this well was given to us by Jacob. And when she refers to Jacob... That's like 2,000 years ago. Jacob from the Bible, from the book of Genesis. So Jesus says, I have better water than this. She says, you have better water than Jacob, huh? Probably a little bit snarky, a little bit sarcastic. Jesus is going to answer further. He talks to her about her marital status. And she moves from distrusting him to kind of giving him a snarky answer. Then he says, you've been married five times and you're shacked up with somebody, and she says, wow, this is different. He, he might actually be better than Jacob. This guy's special. So she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. All right, that, that's a lot of progress in a short amount of time. So she assumed he'd be a jerk, and then she found out that, that he was nice, but maybe a little full of himself because he thought he had better water. And then she realizes, wow, he can deliver. He must be a prophet. And as she inches closer, I wonder if part of, part of her heart, you know, started to just beat a little bit faster and say, how, how did he do that? You know, could he be, could he be the one we're waiting for? And, you know, maybe not. Maybe he blindsided her, but she keeps inching closer and closer. You're a prophet. And Jesus says, I am not a prophet. I am the one who the prophets prophesied about. The prophets were talking about me. I am the Messiah. Do you know what that means? The anointed one, the chosen one, the promised one, all through the Old Testament. If you want to understand the Bible, the entire Old Testament had all these predictions of a Savior. Way back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and the serpent had tempted them, God said that there would be a seed of the woman. That means a, a human, somebody born to a woman 
who would crush the serpent's head. He would be wounded in the process, but he would crush the serpent's head. And you began to have these promises. He would come into the family of Abraham. So through Abraham's descendants, all the world would be blessed. And not only Abraham, he would go through Isaac, not Ishmael. He would go through Jacob, not Esau. He would go into the tribe of Judah. It keeps getting more specific. He would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would be a son of King David. And all of this is being promised. You get to the end of the Old Testament, 39 books, and the promise hasn't been fulfilled, and you're left waiting. You know, we've had some prophets, but not the prophet. We've had kings, but not the king. We've had priests, but not the priest. We've made, by that time, probably millions of sacrifices, but we're still waiting for the lamb who can take away the sin of the world. They're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting. And Jesus audaciously says, I am the Messiah you've been waiting for. It's stupendous. I mean, he's either an egomaniac, you know, an idiot, or he's the promised son of God. God become flesh, the savior of the world. She hears this. She believes it changes her life. It changes her whole city. Who knows all the ramifications, all the trickle down of what God did through her, through the people she witnessed to, through their people they witnessed to. Amazing. This is really just the story of every Christian. All right, you, you don't meet Jesus at a well. But you hear who Jesus is. You hear that he's the Savior. You hear that he's the only one that can take away your sin. You believe in him as ignorant as you might be. You, you might be stupid about the whole Bible. Some of you, you know nothing about the Bible. This woman was stupid. Sorry. She was uninformed. She was ignorant. She knew nothing except Jesus was the promised Savior, and that was enough. And, and it changed her life. You meet Jesus and he saves. That's what he does. Luke 19.10, I've already quoted. 1 Timothy 1.15, the Apostle Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what he does. He came into the world on a rescue mission. He came to save sinners and he saved this lady. So he exposed her sin and he forgave her sin. Cool. But how? How could Jesus find this sinful lady and, and just say, you know, I, I'm giving you life. I'm giving you this living water. And boom, it's as if she had never sinned before. How can Jesus do that? Later on in John 8, Jesus meets a woman caught in the very act of adultery. Like somebody walked in, and you talk about misogynistic, that means like, you know, kind of angling against women. They caught this woman in the very act of adultery. They don't drag the man to be punished. They drag the woman to be punished. The man just get out of here, run away. They drag the woman. She's probably, you know, wrapped in a sheet. And they, they're talking about stoning her. And Jesus comes. He writes in the sand, probably is writing like commandments. And all of them are watching and their conscience are pricked. And they're like, man, all right, she's a sinner, but so am I. I think I'm going to step away. Jesus says, where are your accusers? And this sinful woman says, there's nobody. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
That's amazing. It's who Jesus is. But what gives Jesus the right to say, neither do I condemn you? You have broken God's law. You've rebelled against him. You've defied him. The wages of sin is what? Death. The soul that sins, Ezekiel says, the soul that sins, it shall die. God told Adam and Eve, if you disobey me and eat of that fruit, you will surely. So what gives Jesus the right to say, neither do I condemn you? One thing. Jesus could only forgive her sin because Jesus died for her sin. Now, from the point in history when he was talking to her, I should say Jesus would die for her sin, but that would have gone on to a second line and it messed up my PowerPoint. He would die from her perspective. From our perspective, he did die for her sin. He died for her sin. It's not explicitly in this passage, but it's prophesied in the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament, explained in the New Testament, applied in the New Testament. You see, even God can't just erase or ignore sin. God couldn't just say, you know what, everybody's blown it, but you know, get out of jail free. Today we'll just give everybody a pass. Even God can't do that. He wouldn't be holy. He wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be God. The wages of sin is death. Wages means payment, like minimum wage. The payment you earn by sinning is death. And that's for everybody in the room. We sin, we deserve death. You might argue like, ah, I don't sin that much. Yeah, but you sin. You might not be Charles Manson. You might not be Adolf Hitler, but you're a sinner. And one sin deserves death. And you've committed countless sins. That wage must be paid. You and I could pay it ourselves by dying, not just dying physically, but we could, we could pay the debt ourselves by going to hell. And in Revelation 20, when sinners are cast into the lake of fire, a real place, a terrible place, hell, the lake of fire. Actually, hell is temporary, like a county jail. Then you go to the great white throne. You're, you're guilty for sin. And now you're sent to the penitentiary, to the lake of fire. It lasts forever and ever. Terrible, terrible place. And it says... When people are cast into the lake of fire, this is the second death. They die physically, but then they're going to die spiritually, their soul. The Bible's so, it's just such a fascinating book. Uh, Andy said today how much he loves studying the Bible. It, it's an amazing book. Here's, here's Bible math. If you've only been born once, you know, whatever your birthday was, physically your birth, if you've only been born once, you're going to die twice. Your heart will stop beating, your body will die but you'll be cast in the lake of fire and that'll be the second death and it's forever. But remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You've been born once on your birthday, but spiritually you need to be born by faith in Christ. You need to have life given to you. And the kicker is if you're born only once, you're going to die twice and it's terrible. But if you trust in Jesus and are born again, you're born twice, you're only going to die once. So your heart will stop, but your soul will live forever with Jesus. Okay, what the, the water he gives will be in you, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
So I'm telling all of you tonight, you've got to be born again. You need to know Jesus. You need to be saved. Only Jesus could do that. I ask you a question, what gave Jesus the right to not condemn sinners? John 3, 17. The answer is he did not condemn her because he would eventually be condemned in her place. He would be condemned for her. Her sin would be paid for, just not by her. Her sin would be paid for by Jesus. The woman caught in adultery, Jesus didn't condemn her because he would be condemned in her place as her substitute. You all deserve hell. You deserve condemnation. And if you don't pay that penalty for your sin, it's only because Jesus was condemned in your place. Jesus paid that penalty. I'm so urgent that we understand the rationale, okay, the, the meaning. How, how does this all work? Don't, don't just settle for, you know, you've, you've seen a cross on flannel graph growing up in Sunday school. You had flashcards. You know, you colored a coloring book. Understand the meaning, the genius of the gospel. I'm going to go to one of my favorite verses and explain it as best I can. All the Bible's good, but 1 Peter 3.18 gives, gives the gospel so clearly. You don't even have to turn. I have it printed on the screen. You, you want the gospel in a nutshell? 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins. When did he do that? When did Christ suffer for sins? On the cross. You know, not, not suffering again and again every time there's a, a mass, a new crucifixion. No, he suffered once for sins, and, and we could have just jumped ahead and said, Christ also suffered once for sins that he might bring us to God. The goal in suffering for sins is to bring us to God. Instead of going to hell and being far from God, he wanted to bring us to God, to be reconciled to God, to be the children of God, to be uh, eternally with him in heaven. That, that phrase in the middle actually is a little bit extra. Oh, but it's beautiful. Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. What does that mean? The righteous one suffered for the unrighteous ones. Who's the righteous one? Christ. Who's the unrighteous ones? I'm from Georgia. All y'all. All right, y'all might be singular. All y'all is totally inclusive. But I have to include me. It's for everybody, the whole world. The righteous died for the unrighteous as a substitute. When we use the word vicarious, you know, we sang in a hymn tonight, vicarious. It's a big word. What does that mean? A substitute. He was a substitute who lived for us and obeyed all the commands we couldn't obey. And then he was a substitute when he died for us. It's his vicarious life, his vicarious death. We call it the vicarious atonement. That he paid the price for our sin in our place. He was punished. It was a penal death. It's a funny word. It was a penalty death. He actually died under the wrath of God. The judgment that I deserve, 
Jesus took. And we actually use the word propitiation. What is that? Jesus took God's wrath and satisfied it. God's not going to pour out the wrath that my sin deserves because He is fresh out of wrath when it comes to me because all of His wrath on my sin went to Jesus. Jesus absorbed God's wrath so that I could have God's favor. It's amazing. Let me, let me try to symbolize it for you in a couple ways, kind of use some pictures. We call this the great exchange. You know, we, we could use the illustration. Have any of you read The Prince and the Pauper? Or do you at least know the idea? The prince and the pauper, you have a prince and a poor boy, and you know, through literature and fiction, they can look alike. They look so much alike. They both were bored and they traded places. The prince put on the poor guy's clothes, the poor guy put on the prince's clothes, and they were treated accordingly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a changing of clothes. Think of it this way. We are sinful. We're filthy. You got that? That's not hard. We're filthy. And we could, we could use dirty rags. In fact, the Bible does that. The Bible doesn't just say our sins are like filthy rags, but even the best things we do are like filthy rags. I mean, we're hopeless. Jesus is sinless. Jesus never sinned. He was tempted in every point, just like we're tempted, yet without sin. He is light and in him is no darkness at all. He always did that which pleased his Father. When he was baptized, God spoke from heaven and said, that's my boy. Specifically, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus is sinless. He always pleased the Father. And we could symbolize that with clean garments. I tried to look for a dirty robe and a clean robe, and all I found was towels. So washcloths, but rags, you get it. So clean versus unclean. In the great exchange, here's what God did. He exchanged our garments, so to speak. So God treated Jesus as though he were a guilty sinner. As though. Jesus was not a sinner. He's sinless. He's perfect. But God treated Jesus as though he were a sinner. And then God treats us, Christians, not everybody, not, not the whole world, but those who have come to know Jesus, God treats us as though we were his guiltless sons, and we're not. We're not guiltless. We're so guilty. I mean, in your conscience, you know how bad you are. But God looks at you, and he sees the righteous robes of Christ wrapped around you in spite of you, and it almost sounds blasphemous, but if you're a Christian, God looks at you and says, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. And it's not because you've pleased him, it's because Jesus did it in your place. And then God looked at his son, Jesus. God looked at his son, Jesus, and he saw... Hatred and murder and thievery and lust and pornography and fornication. And he looked at Jesus 
And Jesus is clothed in our sin, not His, ours. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. He's the righteous one. But God made Him to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He traded places with us. It's remarkable. Christians are opposed to work salvation, so we kind of glibly say that, you know, salvation is free. Salvation is free to you. It's free to me. Free to the Samaritan woman. But it was so costly to Jesus. It cost Him His blood. It cost Him His life. It cost Him, it cost him His fellowship with the Father. R.C. Sproul was a faithful Bible teacher. He's with the Lord now. It's an amazing statement. He says, At the moment when Christ took on Himself the sin of the world, His figure on the cross was the most grotesque, most obscene mass of concentrated sin in the history of the world. The sins of people who had sinned before Jesus came were all put on Him. The sins of all the people that would live afterwards were put on Jesus. He takes away the sins of the world. You, you cannot fathom what Jesus suffered for you. You know, there's a, there's a movie, The Passion of the Christ, and it's gory and bloody and, and probably fairly realistic. It talks about the physical suffering. Terrible. But what he dealt with spiritually is hard to even imagine, and, and yet the Bible gives us a glimpse. He is holy, 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 never sinned, can't look at sin, can't tolerate sin, but out of love for us, he took our sin and was wrapped around in our filth, the sins of the world. So from the sinners, he takes sin, and I might say it, he's allergic to sin. He hates it. But he loves you even more than he hates sin, so he took your sin so that you could be forgiven. So from the sinner, he gets the sin, and from God the Father, whom he had had perfect harmony with for eternity, my beloved son, I always do that which pleases the Father. My meat is to do the will of him who sent me. We're going to read in John 4. From the Father, he takes wrath. He's crushed. He, he suffers the hell that we deserved. He suffers the exile that we deserved. So he's hanging on the cross, taking your sin and the wrath of God. And you know, when, when humans let him down, when Judas sold him, he didn't say a word. When the, when the disciples fled from him, he took it quietly. Like a sheep before his shears is dumb, he didn't open his mouth. When Peter denied him three times, he just gave him a look. But when he's hanging on the cross, made to be sin for us, the Father turns from him, and that is too much to bear. And Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's not that he didn't know the answer, it just broke his heart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And so we try to mine the mystery of that imperfectly, but there was a sense in which God was estranged from God. God was separated from God. Isaiah 59.2 says, your sin separates you from God. And on the cross, your sin separated Jesus from God in some mysterious way. The anguish he suffered is unbelievable. And he did that for you. So yeah, your salvation's free. But wow, what a cost was paid for us. Give you one more illustration before we close. His two brothers moved to America. They immigrate from China to California, 1800s. There's an older one and a younger one. Older one's in the front. You can tell on his face he's excited about a new life. He goes out, he gets a job, he gets an apartment, he tries to start a new life. The younger brother was kind of an ingrate. Didn't appreciate the new opportunity. Didn't appreciate his brother. Instead of getting a job, he goes out, he gets in trouble. He's drinking, he's gambling. Eventually, he finds himself in a fight. It gets so bad, he pulls out a knife. He stabs a man. He kills a man. And the man's blood is all over his clothes. It's so obvious that he's guilty. And if he is found as a murderer, he'll be tried and hanged. He'll lose his life. He's guilty as could be. He's terrified. He doesn't know what to do. Runs to his brother's house. He goes inside. He takes off the bloody clothes. He puts on some clean clothes. He runs away to hide. Police are looking through the city for the murderer. They're searching house to house, knocking on doors, looking for who committed this terrible crime. The older brother's been working. He gets home. Sees the bloody clothes. He knows what his brother has done. What do you think he did with the clothes? Hide them? Burn them? Wash them? He takes the bloody pants. He puts them on. He takes the bloody shirt. He puts it on. The police come to the door. He answers. And he hasn't done anything wrong. He's not guilty. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? He did it because he loved his brother. His brother didn't deserve it. His brother's a rascal, but he, he loved his brother. He gets arrested, goes before a judge. It's obvious that you know he looks so guilty in the bloody clothes. He doesn't open his mouth, and eventually he's taken to the gallows. And he died. Did he deserve to die? No. He died as a substitute in place of his brother. He died for his brother's crime. Brother found out, was so distraught. He goes to the police. He turns himself in. He said, you know, you found the wrong man. I'm the murderer. I'm the one. So the story goes, the judge knocks the gavel down and he says, you are guilty and you are pardoned because your crime has been paid. Now, true or not true, what a powerful story. What a powerful illustration. Not even as great as what Jesus did for us, but why would he take our sin on himself and die in our place? Because he loved us. We don't deserve anything but hell. Jesus has done all the work so that we could have heaven.
Close with John 3. Look quickly. You're in John 4. Just turn a page to John 3. John 3.16. You know. I want you looking at it. I'll put it up on the screens. John 3.16. Beautiful. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that He killed His only Son, that He punished His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish in a second death in the lake of fire far from God, but instead have eternal life. Isn't that good news? The next verse goes on. We've referred to it, John 3.17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Isn't that good news? Now read verse 18. Whoever believes in Him, Jesus, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Jesus was condemned in your place. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So God is so gracious. He's done all the work. He's provided a way of salvation. He gave His own Son. Jesus gave His own life, His own blood. You say, oh, it's, it's so easy. But listen, verse 18 draws a line through every human in history. And it says, if you've believed in Jesus, you're saved. But if you don't believe in Jesus, you are already condemned. If you don't trust in Jesus as your Savior, the wages of sin is death. You will pay it yourself in the lake of fire. So you have good news and you have good news and then you have a reality check. There's no middle ground. If you don't know Jesus, you are damned. As if to reemphasize it, look at the last verse of John 3. Let me say this one more time, John says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath, the penalty, the punishment, the rage of God remains on him. You want to be on the side that believes in Jesus. You're treated like a beloved son in spite of yourself. You don't want to be under the wrath of God. I'm begging you. I'm begging you. You know, some who kind of hold out, you're like, ah, all this church stuff, heard of my whole life. You're not getting me. I'm holding out. I'm smart. You know, I'm a critical thinker. You're an idiot. You're going to hell, and you're going to let your pride send you there. What you need to do is just say, God, I don't understand everything, but I'm a sinner, I'm lost, I'm afraid. Forgive me, save me. Jesus, thank you. Remember back in John 4, in verse 10, Jesus said to the woman, if you knew, and once she knew, she was saved. Well, high school camp at IRBC. Now you know. Most of you have known your whole life, but, but you know. You've heard the truth. You've, you've sung the truth. You've, you've recited the truth. 
Now my prayer for you is that you'll believe that faith will come by hearing the word of God. That you'll humble yourselves and ask for mercy. Like the Psalm 51, God have mercy and wash away my sin. The Bible calls you to repent of your sins. To trust in Jesus. And to do it before it's too late. wrote a hymn called Gaze on the Christ, and uh, most people haven't heard it. But it says, God didn't erase our sin. He, he paid it with the blood of Jesus. I'm going to sing this, then we're going to sing together. I'll close in prayer. Behold the Lamb, the spotless Lamb, who takes away our sin. The debt we faced was not erased, but paid in full by Him. Gaze on the Christ, our sacrifice, on altar made of wood. Exalt the Lamb, the worthy Lamb, who bought us with His blood. We already sang together. His robes for mine, but coming out of the message, why don't we sing just that last verse, marvel at the cost. We'll sing it without any instruments. Just thank God for what He's done for us. Remarkable. His robes for mine, such anguish none can know. Christ God's beloved, condemned as though His foe. He as though I accursed and left alone. I as though He embraced and welcomed home. I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. Jesus forsaken, God estranged from God. Bought by such love, my life is not my own. My praise, my all, shall be for Christ alone. Our God, we call on you tonight with gratitude, with wonder, with humility. Thank you for what you have done to save us. I pray that you will use your word and by your spirit apply it to every heart, mine included. Change us with the truth. And oh God, I pray for any who are outside of Jesus and lost. Save them. Tonight, this week, save them. I pray that they will have no rest in their spirit until they cry out and say, God, forgive me. I believe in Jesus. Save my wretched soul. And might there be joy in heaven and joy at camp as we celebrate your power to save. Save people. It's what you came to do. You came to seek and save the lost. Save people at this camp. For Jesus' sake, amen.